I've asked Al if he would come and read our passage this morning. Thank you, Al. So this is Matthew 22, 41 through 46. And uh, it says, uh, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is it? <clears throat> if, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Awesome. Thank you, Al. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your perfect plan. God, your perfect plan that you carried out through your son that now we celebrate in this time of Christmas the very son of God come down to put on human flesh born in the, the humble place of a manger into a poor family not with all the trappings and riches of this world but with the fullness of the power and the glory of God to go to the cross, to pay for our sin, to die for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for carrying that out. God, I pray that you just have your hand on this time in your word. Help us to understand it and to be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Jesus has been tested. Um, I think we're still on Tuesday. Uh, leading up to the cross, um, the time of testing, but it's the end of the time of testing, and Matthew really brings that out here of saying, all right, then Jesus asked them a question, and then they stopped talking. Um, he's, uh, he is the Son of God, and I think it's not just that he's um, asking them a question in order to make argument. I think uh, he's effective in quieting their questions. They didn't dare ask him another question after this one. Um, but it's also just to make it clear. He's preparing everything. He's making it clear who Messiah is. Um, they, they had a picture of who Messiah was going to be. Jews today have a picture of who Messiah is going to be. They still expect Messiah to come. And Messiah is the son of David, right? That's... Uh, Descendant of King David, who will also be a king. The promise is there to David. We're going to look at that. But they don't believe Messiah is going to be deity, right? Today, they don't believe that. And they're clear about that because those Christians, those anti-Semitic Christians, uh, have this idea of, of the Messiah being God. And that's not what they believe is going to be. It's going to be a, a ruler who's going to come and set up the kingdom, just like David or just like... Um, the kings after him, that there's going to be this great Messiah king who's going to come and uh, establish rule and, and overcome their enemies. They believe that today, and that's, that's what they believed here. And so Jesus asked them this question. Let me get my notes in order here. Um, 
While the Pharisees were gathered together, verse 41, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? That is the Messiah. That's not Jesus' name. It's not his last name. We don't say Jesus Christ. That's his last name. He's Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they know the answer to that. The son of David, right? Um, and they're right. That, that is what the Old Testament said. If I look in 2 Samuel, God's covenant with David, with King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, after you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. That's physical descendant, right? And I will establish his kingdom. And then verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I don't know how you could have a human king that's going to reign forever. I don't, they're, they're adamant that, that it's, it's going to be just this super uh, king, or maybe they've got some other ideas of how that works out, but that is the promise, and it is a physical descendant of David that is the promise. So, son of David, that's, <clears throat> you have to understand, son of doesn't mean an immediate son in their context. They understood that to mean a descendant of, right? Or having the attributes of. It, it carries in that same idea of David was a king. This will be a king. Uh, David's throne will continue. Um, and all of that is true. So they answer correctly, but then Jesus has the question that reveals more, because it's not enough to say, Messiah is the son of David. It's true, but it's not the whole picture. And Jesus is going to make that clear, but he's going to do this in a way that they're just going to be baffled by. Um, and it's there, and just like everything else, it's there in Scripture for us to see if we can understand it. They just didn't get it. Um, and so he said, uh, whose son is he? Um, they said to him, son of David, he said to them, verse 43, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Uh, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Um, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. If you're like me, the first time I read this, it was a little confusing. Uh, wait, 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 what are you talking about? The Lord said to my Lord, if David calls him Lord, how's he? Here's what's going on. David's writing a psalm, right? Psalm 110. And as he's writing this psalm, David writes, The Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, and this psalm is about the Messiah, my Lord is uh, the subject of the psalm. And everything that follows in that psalm is talking about whoever my Lord is. And they understood, the Pharisees understood. This is, Psalm 110 is actually the most quoted passage uh, from the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, right? It's about the Messiah. The whole thing is about the Christ, Messiah. They knew that. They believed that. 
And so they knew that whoever David is calling my Lord there, Yahweh said to my Lord, is the Messiah. Well, who's the Messiah? Whose son is he? He's the son of David. Well, how, why is David calling him my Lord? That, you wouldn't do that. That's, it's actually the way it's constructed there would be to, to be a servant of. I'm a servant of my descendant? How is that? What's Jesus doing here? He's making it very clear who Messiah is. The only way this is possible is if Messiah is the Son of God. Right? They didn't get that. It didn't even fit. I mean, they were still... Uh, it's not until you get into the New Testament that we have clarity. It's there in the Old Testament, but we have real clarity of the Trinity, that there's a God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, they didn't quite get all of that. They knew of God. They knew of His Spirit. Their emphasis was what is true, that there is one God. That was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So they didn't understand all these things. Um, they certainly didn't understand that Jesus standing right in front of them was the Son of God, right? Um, so this was hard for them to get. Um, Jesus is not here denying what they said, that, that the Messiah is the son of David. He's just clarifying. And we've already seen, we start out Matthew, uh, uh, the genealogy of Christ, Matthew 1.1. You can put that up there. We have that? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If I go back a whole other set of generations, right? Go back to Abraham. If I do Luke's account, the son of Abraham, go all the way back to, to Adam, son of Adam, son of God, right? It, it just, where, where does it go? And, and so this is true. But the glory of what was happening there is that the Messiah was so much more than just son of David. And we saw that in Matthew chapter 1 as well. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. But he considered these things, but as he considered, this is Joseph considering, uh, that Mary is pregnant. What am I going to do? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary is related by blood to David. The promise is fulfilled. Jesus is a son of of David from his flesh, right? But he's also of the Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Messiah is deity, is God. That's why David called him my Lord. Yes, descendant of David, but also the Son of God. And Jesus is looking in Scripture saying, look right here. Who is Messiah? Um, here's the first point. It's a really important point. It's really obvious, but Jesus is the Son of God, right? 
We, we, need to, we need to establish that. Jesus is the Son of God. He is deity. He's been around, right? We, we see him in Scripture uh, from the beginning. Uh, when, when Abraham is entertaining these guys that come by that are going to go uh, inspect what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, right? And, and he calls him Lord. Uh, in a spelling that's different than how Sarah would call Abraham Lord, right? Just in, in the scripture there, we see evidence, hey, this is, this is Jesus before he became a man in human form. But there's lots of places we see the angel of the Lord spoken of, and we realize it is the Son of God already showing up in the Old Testament before we get to the New um, we have a lot of preconceptions about who Jesus is, don't we? We get them from a lot of places, whether it's from Hollywood, um, uh, great shows like uh, The Chosen, right? But that does portray Jesus uh, with some artist uh, license, right? Artistic license. Uh, I, I love watching The Chosen. There's some things that are just amazing. You can't get through it without tearing up because you just think of, you know, meditating on who Jesus really is, right? But, but there's all these portrayals of Jesus and we, we have preconceptions. I, I don't think I have a full concept of the greatness and glory of who Jesus is for, for all of the years that I've known him and studied about him and, and walked with him. What are your preconceptions about Jesus or about God? Right? As you've grown up, your experiences, the things you've learned, you kind of have your own ideas about who Jesus is. Uh, there's the Hallmark versions of those things. There's, there's the Sunday school things that we learned that are good. Um, but sometimes uh, cartoonish. Um, Evangelicals today portray Jesus not necessarily in a way that matches all of Scripture. Sometimes we emphasize those parts that, that are so meaningful to us, like, like his kindness, his compassion, his love. I, the, the fact that he went to the cross for us is amazing and incredible. Um, and we, then we see his life living, lived out as a man, but he's living, that is a period of time. Uh, he's eternal. He's existed for all time, and he will exist for all time. It's a short period of time uh, of just, just over 30 years where he's a man. That doesn't fully describe Jesus. It's like undercover Jesus. He's humbled himself. He's, he's set aside his deity, his glory, and, and who he is is, is just kind of hidden there. The one who created the world that John says was standing right there among us, and we didn't know who he was. So if, if your whole concept of Jesus is just what you see, like in a movie of his life here on earth, that's a very humble, true, but incomplete picture of who Jesus is. Um, we put up nativities. Here's a nativity. Uh, you get one in your house. We get, you know, it's growing up. You get, okay, there's Jesus and all the people. He's someone who's loved, someone who's worshipped, who's in the humble beginnings. Um, a lot of true things about Jesus we learn. 
but it's incomplete, just like <laughs> the Pharisees had an idea of who Messiah was, son of David. But that's not the whole picture, is it? Let's look at, at Psalm 110. Psalm 110, most quoted passage, it's all about Messiah, so it's all about Jesus, maybe, and this is good for us to just to meditate on who Jesus is in ways that might challenge or help us to understand more um, the glory of who Jesus is. Um, let's see, I got my wrong notes. I'm going to look at it from here. Got it. Psalm 110 begins, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Just, just picture what's going on here. Yahweh says to Adonai. That's literally what's said here in the Hebrew. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the place of honor, the place of power, the place of glory. Sit at the right hand of God the Father, until I, the Father says, until I make your enemies your footstool. Where are the enemies of God? All around us. We, we started out enemies of God, right? God the Father. This is kind of a scary thought. Here, Son of God, Jesus, beloved Son, sit right here while I make your enemies your footstool. Put your feet on them. It's a picture. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Yours, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. So Yahweh, the Father, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. You know, this is already happening today in part of God's plan. Christ is ruling within the hearts of you and I, within the hearts of everyone who's given a life to Him, in the midst of, we live in the midst of the enemies of God, and, and Christ is ruling among us. But this is not done yet. There is a time when Christ will come with a mighty scepter to rule in a very obvious and clear way. Um, verse 3, your people, that's us, Messiah, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. You know, this, this is already partially happening as well. It's not, not fully there. But we offer ourselves freely, Lord Jesus. We don't come to Jesus out of compulsion. We come to Jesus with a heart that has been, with eyes that have been opened to the glory of who Jesus is. And we say, yes, Lord, I want to serve you. I want my whole life to be yours. This is already happening. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, and he is working in power. It's not the complete day of his power, but he has already, uh, by the power of God, been risen from the dead, and now the Spirit has come in power. His power is now uh, living in us, among us, And we are offering ourselves with holy garments. When do we see this fully pictured, realized? Think Revelation chapter 19 when the saints enter the scene clothed in white linen that is what? The righteousness 
of the saints. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, those are holy garments. Uh, but, but we have that now, but it will be in glory later. And the day of his power, I think, will ultimately be when Jesus comes again at the end of the tribulation with the mighty scepter to rule, right? This is all going to happen. Picture Jesus. This is not Hallmark Jesus. This is Jesus in blinding light, clothed in light, coming, and, and, and the Father there acting on his behalf, the Almighty God. The Lord has sworn, verse 4, or, sorry, the last part of verse 3, uh, this one, every translator has a hard time with the Hebrew, and so this probably figures a speech here. Uh, the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I think just the idea probably is just Jesus. He is going to reign forever. He is uh, going to have either the vitality of his youth um, or, or just the, his eternal nature, who he is. Uh, this is talking about Messiah. If you expect Messiah to be just a man, um, this is challenging that. You are going to um, have eternal uh, eternity. Uh, that's my best shot at that. It, you can get a bunch of different ideas. It's okay. Whatever the author meant, the Spirit was leading him in it, and it's absolutely true, whatever it truly means. Uh, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So Yahweh has sworn, the Father has sworn, will not change his mind. Who are you going to be, Messiah? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I could go into a long thing on that. The book of Hebrews has a little mini-sermon on this passage because this is a big deal. He's not... There's 12 tribes of Judah, right? And, 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 and or, or 12... Yeah, 12 tribes of Judah, 12 types of Jacob, sorry, of Israel. Jacob changed his name to Israel. He had 12 sons. And then Judah was one of them. Levi was another one. From Judah came the line of kings. From Levi came the line of priests with Aaron, and everyone descended from Aaron, right? There's never been a priest king. If you're priests, you're in the Levi line. If you're a king, you're in the Judah line. Jesus is not after the order of the Levites, and that's significant because he brings a different covenant, a different law, Right? He, he's a better priest. He's after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek barely shows up. He shows up. Abraham actually gives him a tithe. He is a priest king of Salem. Um, we don't know a lot about him, but he's a type pointing towards Jesus, right? He, he's both priest and king and is not dependent on a lineage for that. Jesus is the eternal priest. If you ever think, well, I got to go talk to a priest, you got one to talk to, Jesus. No need for a man anymore. No need for anyone tied to the, Levi, uh, the Levites or, or Aaron. We have Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. Um, then verse 5, Yahweh is at your right hand. They just switch places. Here you've got Jesus now with his father at his right hand acting on his behalf. That should scare you. 
the Father coming in. And what is He doing? He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. This is the tribulation. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Just imagine the nations in place today, our nation included. We're not exempt from this somehow. What will the Father, God the Father, do at the right hand of His Son in order to set all nations as a footstool for His Son to rule over? Just read the book of Revelation. Most of the book of Revelation is about a seven-year period. And it's the Father carrying out His wrath, filling the world with corpses. It is judgment upon the world. This is not the hallmark version of Jesus and God. But it's important that we have a true, the full picture, who God is, who Jesus is. Verse 7, finally, he will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. This is speaking of the Messiah still. And I think the idea is just he's the conquering hero. Every stream, every brook is his. He can lift up his head as the one who has conquered all. This will take us into the millennium. This is the Messiah. Do you see Jesus that way? It is good to understand His amazing love, His compassion, His kindness. But that's not the whole picture. He's a conquering king. It's a healthy thing to have some amount of terror of the person of who Jesus Christ is. If, if He was to appear now before we're in our glorified bodies, we would all fall flat. He'd be clothed in light. You know, we tried to do with the, the Christmas display, you know, shine a, shine a spotlight in your face, right? It pales in comparison. It's like, ah, hey, hey. No, if Jesus was there, boom, we would just, we'd be blinded, just like Paul was on the road to Damascus. The blinding light of our Jesus, our Lord. There's a couple of things I want to draw our attention to in this passage. Uh, if we just came away saying Jesus is incredible, He is the Son of God, and we need to fully take in His whole being, not just like the Pharisees, the parts that, that we're used to or our preconceptions, but our minds need to be open to who He is. That would be enough. Uh, but there's some really, really important things that, that come out in this passage I think we need to look at. And the first is just how Jesus treats Scripture. How does Jesus handle Scripture? Because it's in contrast to how most, and I'd say even most evangelicals today throughout the world treat Scripture. I'm, I, I do a lot of studying and preparing, and, and there's a lot of value to read from different commentators, different scholars. But it's frustrating because not everybody treats Scripture the way Jesus treats Scripture. How does Jesus treat Scripture? That's how, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I should, I should handle Scripture the same way He does. 
Look what he says. He's referring to Psalm 110 in verse 43. How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? A couple of things to notice. First, who wrote Psalm 110? Do you know that's a debated topic? Uh, the superscript in the Hebrew says Psalm of David. Well, then they'll argue, is the superscript... Uh, Jesus seems to think that the superscript is probably accurate, right? Should I have any further argument over who wrote that psalm if I see Jesus saying, David? No, in the discussion, I, it, it's a pointless discussion. But it's right there. Evangelical uh, commentary. Well, th these two people say this, and these three people think this. What is their treatment of Scripture? What is their treatment of the integrity of Scripture? Right? That's in contrast. Jesus, and he's quoting the Septuagint. So that he's, he's quoting a translation. Right? We can use a translation as God's authority. The Septuagint's a Greek translation of the Hebrew, if you didn't know that. Right? There should be no discussion uh, if it's so clear, if the Bible says it. And, and then also notice, what is the main point of Psalm 110? It's, it's declaring what's going to come for Messiah, what, what the Father's going to do. For, it's all about Messiah. This is the intro. The Lord said to my Lord, it's, it's something we'd skim over. And yet Jesus uses it as a vital part of his argument. Actually, the fact that David is writing it, his whole argument uh, it hangs on that. Right? It, it makes no point. If David's not the one calling him my Lord, then there's no point in the argument. Um, how does Jesus treat even the intros, even the it has the weight of the Word of God because it's true. David is speaking in what? Jesus says, as David spoke in the Spirit. And actually, it's the, when he says David spoke, it's, it's the present tense. It's a, it's a current and ongoing. It's like, as David even now is speaking in the Spirit to you through God's Word. Do you see it that way? As Paul is writing, well, this is what Paul wrote a long time ago. No, this is what Paul, even now in the Spirit, is speaking to you. This is, this is what Peter, even now in the Spirit, is speaking to you. There, there, there's an, an active, right? Paul says that the, the, the living and active Word of God. How? Why? Because David? No. Because Peter? No. Because the Spirit. And, and even as David, David probably didn't even realize the significance, but the Spirit was guiding him in that. It had all of the, all of the figures of speech and the way that David wrote and, and all the character of David in it, but because the Spirit was guiding him to write the Word of God, everything is true. Even the things that aren't the main point. So we need to treat God's word the way that Jesus treats it, where everything you could lean on, you can weigh an argument on, because look, look at what was said here, even if it wasn't the main point. 
Here's our second point. The Bible is God's word. How do you treat this? What are your preconceptions? Is this a historical book? That, there, there's, this is so vitally important because today you will run across in main evangelical circles people who treat it less than what Jesus treats it as. Can you weigh a whole argument even just on the intro to something? Because God's saying it. It's true. Even if it's not the main thing, uh, and, and, and it's maybe not in every detail, God inspired it, so it's got truth in it. That's, that's not in any normal, ordinary book, only in the Word of God. Um, what are your preconceptions about the Bible? The Pharisees had preconceptions. They, well, the Bible says he's the son of David, and they kind of skimmed over those other difficult things, like he reigns forever. Um, there's a lot of things that they, they kind of skimmed over, and we do the same thing. Oh, I got that. I'm going to hold on to that. You know how many times I've been challenged in my understanding of things? Because what, what we do naturally is, oh, I got this. Oh, I got this nugget. Here's how it is. And I explain it in my head. I explain it. I've got it. And then I run into something in God's Word that just reveals that I don't have the whole picture. I'm missing something. What do I do then? If I treat it as Jesus would treat it, this is the authority. And I humble myself and I say, I'm missing something. There's something more here. And let God's word stand true and take every part, even the introductions. Um, it's funny, and it, just watching, you know, we've got these new telescopes out in outer space, and, you know, they're seeing how redshift, you know, things are expanding and spreading out and in, in the universe, and, and all these comments about how we can understand better, you know, how all of this started. Um, and, and even evangelicals who don't necessarily treat this as a book that the creator of the universe inspired, so it has the authority, and even in those introductions and extra little pieces has truth, even if it's not the main point. It has truth in everything that it says. Um, they kind of skim over anything the Bible said and say, well, yeah, we're going to start to figure these things out and not realize some of this is already, not that this is trying to give you a, a science lesson, but anything that's described in here is true in its description. You know, it, it's not necessarily specific Right? You say, well, it said the sun rose in the east, but we know the truth is that really the earth was rotating. And no, it's true in the level of specificity that's, that's obvious, right? Straightforward and obvious. The sun rose in the east. Yes, the sun rose in the east. It's true. Um, some people try to make points and say, well, no, we know better in science now. What level of, uh, what was being communicated? And what's being communicated is. True. So a scientist looking at the universe spreading out. Is there anything that we see in the Bible about the universe spreading out? And we're noticing that now. Spreading out. When, when the uh, age of enlightenment going in the 1800s and, and afterwards came along, there was, a, there was a crisis of faith because people were like, oh, science in the Bible, they don't know. 
And today we're like post-enlightenment. I don't know what you would call that, where science has a whole new meaning. The creator of the universe who created atoms, who created the heavens and the earth, wrote this. And he was writing about what's most important, but even in those extras, everything he wrote is true. Let's look at a few things here. I'm going to jump really fast through a bunch of different verses. Anything in here about the universe spreading out? Job 9.8. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who alone? God did. Right? In Psalm 104, um, it's, just, it's, it's glorifying God, saying, You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And then it says, Covering yourself with light as with a garment. God is the creator of light, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Who did it? God. Isaiah 40, 22 is just talking about the incomparable greatness of God. That is the main point of just glorifying God. And, and just in the language there, as the Spirit is, is on Isaiah, just, just glorifying God. God is giving him material, and it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Have you ever seen those videos where it shows how little we are compared to the circles of the different things in the universe? You know, that's been, that was already done in 700 B.C., as, as God is just giving Isaiah material to write, Isaiah didn't realize, oh, this is a picture of the earth and the little grasshoppers on it, the circle of the earth. They didn't know about planets back then. And it's not the main point of the passage, but who's inspiring it? The one who created it, created everything. And so it has truth in it, even hundreds, if not thousands of years before we would understand why that's true. The Creator is inspiring it. Uh, and, then, and then he follows that with who? What? Stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who's doing it? God spreads out the heavens. Isaiah 42, 5, describing Jesus, the suffering servant. That is the main point of the passage, but what does it say in, in there? Thus says the, this is God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The main point is so much greater than a science lesson. But every part of it has truth. Um, Isaiah 45, prophesying a century and a half before the king of Persia, King Cyrus, was even born, calling him out by name of, here is how you are going to be the king that will return my people from, from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem. And in the context of that passage, that's the main point of it, what does God say through Isaiah? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Who did it? God did it. Isaiah 51, talking about the comforter of Zion, and, and saying, Israel, why do you fear man? Right? And, and then continues in verse 13 here, and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You see how... If we don't have this concept of God, we can fall into the same place of Israel as not worshiping God. 
not recognizing his hand, not fearing God because he is the one who stretched out the heavens. In Jeremiah, comparing God to idols and talking about the destruction of God's wrath on Babylon after his people have, have been taken there, uh, what does it say? It is he. It actually repeats this very passage twice in Jeremiah. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Was it just a random, meaningless expansion? No, by his understanding, by his wisdom, by his design, by his hand. Everything is as God made it to be. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't unintentional. It wasn't absent from his, his control and his might. It was done by him. Zechariah, talking about, it, it, you know, this, is, this happened in a, in a partial way in 70 AD when, when Israel was under siege and they destroyed Jerusalem. But, but this is the passage where it's going to talk about Israel. In the tribulation, you are going to be under siege, but this time the Lord will come to rescue you, right? And here's the intro to it. It's just the intro before he starts talking. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Do you treat God's word the way Jesus treated it? Even an introduction carries truth. And we can understand the world, the world around us, understand things, because everything God said is true, and he is the creator of all things. Back I think before I was born, there were some gospel songs. Had this phrase, God said it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. If you have that attitude towards God's word, you're going to be ahead of 90 plus percent of the scholars out there. They're circling around arguing and trying to figure out things because they won't just believe what it says is true. They won't humble themselves to say, I'm not greater than God's word. Maybe I can't reconcile two passages, but the limit's not God's word, it's me. Right? It's so vitally important that we treat this as Jesus treated it. Second thing in here I want you to notice, as you're looking at manger scene and you're realizing whose son that is, the son of God, and the glory of who Jesus is. Jesus came to his own, John says, and his own didn't receive him. The Jews didn't receive him. But, he says, to all who did receive him, who all who do receive him, who believe on his name, he's given the right to be called children of God. When you look at that manger and you realize who Jesus is, the very Son of God, here's something else true. Here's, here's the fuller picture of the story. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've believed on his name, then you're looking at big brother. You're looking at family. 
in that manger scene. There's a glory to that. Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, you know when you're talking about someone and, they, and they're like, oh yeah, I know that person. We go way back. Yeah, I knew them in high school. Oh yeah, you know who I'm talking about. You know how long God knew you? Since the foundation of the world, since before he spread out the heavens, before he did all that, and, and this is a personal knowledge. It's not a gnosko knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. A lot of different words for knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. He knew you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows all your faults. He knows all, he's known that better than a high school bestie. He knows you. And there's not one person who loves you more than he does. Because the God who declares the end from the beginning for you has predestined you to be to made like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of his Son, to have the character of Jesus, to have the glory of Jesus, to, to have the righteousness of Jesus. That's the plan that he has for your life. He's predestined for you. Right? In order that he might be big brother a bunch, among a bunch of brothers and sisters, right? The firstborn among many brothers. He is the first. He is the first to, to die. Then we follow him, say, putting to death the old person that we are. He's the first to be risen from the dead. And then we follow him and have new life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the first to have a new and glorified body. And one day we will have a new and glorified body just like his. He is the first in everything. And then we follow him. The third point, Jesus is the firstborn among many. And that's us if we believe in him. If we don't believe in him, if we don't trust him, we don't receive Christ, well, that puts us in that scary position as the enemies of God, and we know what's going to happen in that future. But if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, received him, believed on his name, then you are one of the many. We're children of God, co-heirs with Christ. So we've got preconceptions about Jesus. We've got preconceptions about God's Word. We also have preconceptions about ourselves. Who are you? How do you see yourself? Do you realize you're a child of God? Because who you are, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, is now defined by whose you are. Right? You're His. You belong to Jesus. You belong to the Father. You're in the security of His hand. So this season, as we're looking at the manger scene, let's just meditate a little. Let God help us to have a bigger understanding of who His Son is. The glory of His Word that declared in many prophecies what God was going to do through His Son. And understand better who we are 
in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you, with no effort at all, at all, were able to silence the Pharisees by just opening a peek into the glory of your word. God, I pray that we seek the truth of your word every day and that you reveal to us the glory of who you are, not just science lessons, but the glory of the purpose that you wrote those things, that we would honor you, glorify you, fear you, God, above all else, and not fear man. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your work on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your love Oh,
living hope. I love that phrase. Not just because we're Hope Church, but we have living hope in Jesus Christ. Present, active, working. The glorified Son of God. That we wouldn't be able to stand seeing Him in this place until we have glorified bodies. He lives within us. What do we have to fear, church? What can man do to you? That's what, that's what the Bible asks. They just kill you. Can't kill me. I, I've already been put to death, right? I've got eternal life from here out. So we have our living hope in Jesus Christ. Live this season in that. And invite your friends to our Hope Light display down here. It would be great, too. Don't forget that. And Night in Bethlehem, yeah, last night is tonight. Uh, we're going tonight. If, if you want to go, we'll try to find us um, in the crowd. Uh, we're doing that. But uh, I love you, church. Go in the Lord.